The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 18th, 2016, the Should You Believe Juanita Broderick edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in Washington. Hello. Hi, David. Jean Valjean, uh, fresh off his book tour, or in the middle of his book tour. The Whistle Stop Book Tour. Catch, oh, my God. And a number of uh, wonderful Slate Gapfest fans that have been on the Whistle Stop Book Tour. It's amazing. It's, I've accepted so many compl- compliments for you guys. It's uh, just I should bring them in in huge sacks of, uh, of Read love. them. Read them on the floor of the Gap Fest. Exactly. Uh, also, <laughs> also recipient of those compliments is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who is probably at, in New Haven. Are you in New Haven, Emily? I am indeed. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I missed you guys. I didn't actually listen to the show, so I don't know whether it was great when I was gone, but I assume it was awesome. But I was too, it was, it upset me too much. Plus, I had a really crummy Wi Fi. Um, was it good? It was good. It was good. Just say it. It was great. It, it achieved new levels of greatness. <laughs> we missed you desperately. On this week's plots filled Gabfest, the shakeup of the Trump campaign. Amid reports that Trump's campaign guru, Paul Manafort, has even creepier ties to Russia than previously believed. Then the violence in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Donald Trump's response to it. Then the return of Juanita Broderick. How should Hillary Clinton supporters think about old allegations of sexual misbehavior by Bill Clinton? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, the sale of Gawker and Peter Thiel's defense of his attempt to crush Gawker in court. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The Trump campaign manufactured a whole new hailstorm of chaos this week amid reports that campaign chairman and string puller Paul Manafort had previously unrevealed and possibly illegal connections to Russia, Russian and Ukrainian power players. Trump shook up his campaign. He he possibly demoted Manafort. We'll find out in a second whether he did. And he hired Breitbart News impresario Steve Bannon as his campaign CEO. He elevated pollster Kellyanne Conway to campaign manager. He may have enlisted Roger Ailes to coach him for his debate, or that may have already been going on. To discuss all this and more, we are joined by Slate contributing editor Frank Four, who has written a ton about Manafort and his shady dealings. Frank, hey David. welcome back. Thank the, you. To the GabFest. Have wow, you been on the crazy. show? You've never. No, you've never been on? No, I'm a virgin. Oh, my God. That's impossible. Yeah. Thanks I'm, a lot. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. I'm embarrassed. Yeah, I'm David good friend. Uh, way to go, David. Um, which, okay. which shortcomings did I possess that you weren't telling me about, David? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. <laughs> And we were going to toss you out for Julia Yaffe anyway. <laughs> when your time schedule, we were just like, get rid of him. Okay, enough, um, enough. All right. So, Frank, can you just, like, for those of us who have not followed every twist of the Manafort story, what are the latest allegations against him and ha- what do they pile onto? What is the huge steaming pile of, of uh, Ukrainian dog shit that, they, that already exists there? Well, to step back, for the last month of this campaign, people have been focused on the connections between – Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and trying to explain this strange nexus between the two and all these mysterious things that seem to be happening, like the GOP platform 
uh, shifting on Ukraine and, and and his comments about NATO, et cetera. And so a lot of attention has focused on Paul Manafort because Manafort, in addition to being chairman of the campaign, has this long history of working in the Ukraine and working for several oligarchs in Ukraine and Russia. And so what we found this week was a set of black ledgers uh, in a safe in the party That's of regions. Not suspicious. Hedge. Not suspicious. <laughs> never, never suspicious, <laughs> especially not when uh, $12.7 million in disbursements to you are written in Cyrillic chicken scratch. And so, uh, you know, we knew Paul Manafort was working for Viktor Yanukovych, who was the president of Ukraine and who, was, who brought Ukraine into Vladimir Putin's orbit. And we knew he got paid a lot of money for it, but we didn't know how much money. We didn't know where it came from. And here was uh, seemingly concrete evidence that he got $12.7 million in this I mean, even though it was in a book, it was really an off-the-book sort of payment. And we can assume that it's just a small chunk of the money that he got from the, the Ukrainians. And there's all sorts of other stuff swirling around Manafort on the side. So one of his business partners was a Ukrainian oligarch called Dmitry Firtash, who is Vladimir Putin's guy in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm going to – can I get a little bit into the weeds here? A little I won't bit. Go, I won't get too into That's the weeds. That's a different podcast, but go ahead. Okay. This guy, Firtash – would get sold natural gas by Putin at an extremely cheap rate. And then he would take, he would sell the, the, that cheap gas to the Ukrainians and uh, the Ukrainians would pay, pay full price. Now the delta of the profit there he took and he invested in trying to buy Ukraine on behalf of Putin, buy Ukraine's political class. And so this guy Furtash right now is, uh, we're trying to extradite him to the United States. And Furtash worked with Manafort on various projects. They tried to build, buy a building in New York and Furtash basically laundered money through Manafort. And this stuff is kind of percolating on the side. So if you're Donald Trump and you're sitting and watching a lot of this stuff, you're frustrated with Paul Manafort because Manafort's telling you to behave in a way that seems very unnatural for Donald Trump. And there are probably a lot of people who hate Paul Manafort in the campaign who are pointing to each and every of these developments and telling Donald Trump that this guy is a scandal who's going to bring you down. And Trump doesn't like to act to head off potential scandals. He's got an incredible capacity for denying the evil of people around him. He does no vetting of the people that he hires, and he doesn't like to fire people. But it seems like there was this kind of anti-Manafort swarm that appealed to Trump in his gut that did the guy in ultimately. Um, John, so Frank just mentioned that one of the things that Manafort was trying to do was make Trump behave in ways that were counter to Trump's natural instincts. What is it that Manafort was trying to do on the campaign that was anathema to Trump? And and is the shift to Bannon and Conway a reversion to Trump letting Trump go his own way? Yeah, letting Trump be Trump. Um, what Manafort had been doing, and it wasn't just Manafort, but what those who are on the kind of outer, the so let's say the second ring outside of Trump and his family, and then the second ring beyond that were people trying to create a bridge between John, Donald Trump of the primaries and, and Donald Trump of the general election. And so right after Manafort came in, he had a meeting with the Republican National Committee in which he said, you know, Donald Trump's been playing a role in the primaries. He's going to get more moderate and more agreeable in the general election. And so don't worry about what you might have seen with him in the, in the primaries. He's going to um, 
pivot or modify. Trump himself said at various different times, you know, I can be as presidential as I can be more presidential than anyone else. I'll modify when when and if the time comes and it's necessary. And so for the last several months, you've heard both Paul Manafort say this, you've heard Senator Bob Corker say that the private Trump is different than the public one. So everybody just gets to need to know the private Trump. Dr. Ben Carson said there are two Trumps. There's this private guy. Governor Pence has been telling people like Senator Jeff Flake, who has been a real critic of Trump's, you know, you don't really know the private Trump who's very different than this public guy. So there's been this idea that he is going to modify and that even if it doesn't look like he's modified yet, don't worry, there is this private Donald Trump who's quite different than this public. Donald Trump has finally just said, oh, stop it. There's one Trump. It's me. I won the primaries. Get out of my way. I'm going to do it that way in the general election. And that's what what has happened uh, kind of into the large structural sense of the campaign. The, the reasons he didn't like uh, what Manafort was trying to help him do was, A, he doesn't want to – he wants to be Trump. He wants to be himself. He thinks that that both is what politi- is politically successful and it's also much more pleasing than having to kind of wear the itchy shirt of <laughs> of the kind of general election Donald Trump that they were trying to create, which is not authentic. Secondly, there has been some grumbling when uh, Manafort said on TV, you know, Donald Trump runs the campaign. I just execute this and that and the other thing. And and the way that was received, or at least Manafort's enemies make this case, that was received as, hey, not my fault if this doesn't work well. Then there are all these distracting stories that come along about his personal relationships. There is a lot of grumbling uh, in internal Trump land about lack of a ground game, which there isn't really one of to speak of. So there are a lot of troubles. And what he's done is hired or essentially elevated people who are who are likely to let him go his own way, continue being the guy he wants to be. And Manafort will still be a part of this, but certainly not in the same way he was before. Before we get to to the sort of Breitbart angle on it, let, let's just linger on Manafort because he is a Dickensian kind of character. Frank, do you think that that Trump's positions on Russia are in fact that he's being puppet mastered by Manafort? Do, they, do you think the fact that Manafort is close to Putin and the fact that Trump is appearing to represent Putin's interests in his campaign that is a that is a direct relationship, or those two things are happenstance. They're, they're happenstance. Trump was praising Vladimir Putin going back to 2007, long before he was getting handled by. Paul Manafort. And, you know, my theory has always been that Trump had mercantilist reasons for praising Putin, that he wanted to build buildings in Russia and sucking up to political power was extremely helpful for him there. Manafort may have broken a series of laws. It's possible he broke a series of laws about sort of reporting as a foreign agent or doing the bidding of foreign governments while intervening in U.S. politics. Is that something that actually should be pursued by prosecutors? Is that a big deal or is this just sort of political gamesmanship and we should just let it be – let Manafort be a casualty of the campaign and not worry about this as a legal matter? Well, the Clinton campaign has made a lot about the relationship between Donald Trump and Russia. I mean it is striking that the previous Republican nominee said that Russia was the greatest geopolitical threat in the United – or sorry, to the United States. And now the guy who comes along after him who has promised to be tough on all kinds of countries, what he says about China is a – real departure from U.S. policy. And yet about Russia, he has this kind of very relaxed kind of, yeah, well, it's, you know, like totally in repose about Russia. So that's something the Clinton people made a lot about. They haven't, in my 
in the last couple of weeks made a lot about the Manafort connection. And I and maybe A, I've missed that. But B, it could also be because the Clinton Foundation's relationship with the State Department and the big money that was given to the Clinton Foundation and then the emails back and forth between the State Department and wealthy Lebanese billionaire types um, is in the same – I'm not saying it's of the same order, but it's in the same – basket and perhaps that may be why similarly uh, there was yesterday the ap reported that there was a chunk of money that manafort was funneling to the podesta group which is run by clinton campaign chairman john podesta's brother tony right. uh, but on the, the the technical question of whether he broke the law the problem is is that the the foreign agents registration act which is the law that governs this is something that is just not taken very seriously, hardly ever enforced and was written and amended and, and interpreted in ways in which makes it very easy for somebody to represent a foreign government or foreign presidential candidate, give strategy and advice and not be in technical violation of the law. Let us move to, to, to the elevation of Steve Bannon or the emergence in the Trump campaign, official emergence in the Trump campaign of Steve Bannon, now the CEO of the campaign. Bannon is, I confess, I knew nothing about till three days ago, is a fascinating figure. He's kind of a merry prankster of the right, or maybe not so merry, just a prankster of the right who succeeded in running Breitbart News after Andrew Breitbart's death and has uh, revived it and made it a a kind of tribune of what people call the alt-right, of the nativist, populist, furious, anti-immigration, white, mostly white right that Donald Trump is channeling. It has been a, a, a mouthpiece for that campaign. Now it is becoming, in some sense, an official arm of that campaign. So, John, had you did you know anything about Bannon? Had, you, had he been a presence in the campaign, the campaign coverage, before this news broke? Well, yeah, because the... There have been a series of uh, – as Breitbart has picked sides in the Trump versus conservatives battle, there have been a number of people who have then – who've left – who worked at Breitbart who now have left or a number of people who are conservatives who've been targeted by Breitbart for one reason or another. And so he's been in the conversation for a while and Ben Shapiro who wrote for Breitbart has been in the – a kind of public war with him, and the idea was basically that Breitbart had become the Pravda of the of the Trump campaign. Although, as the Wall Street Journal put it today, Pravda was more subtle. Um, <laughs> there has been this war going on, and it gets really vicious really fast uh, because Breitbart plays hardball, and so now there's a lot of people writing about Bannon in, in very in highly unflattering terms, who are from in most other battles would be considered to be his allies, at least ideologically. Emily, do you think as as somebody watching the campaign or somebody who, who's sort of fearful of a Trump presidency, which I think you are, that the arrival of this, you know, really effective P.T. Barnum-like right-wing propagandist and spectacle creator makes you think, oh, my God, now the Trump campaign, you know, th this represents a new danger to the Trump campaign? Or do you breathe a sigh of relief that like, well, at least we know they're not going to have a ground game. At least we know that's just going to be sort of crazy uh, flame throwing from here on out. And they're not going to they've given up on the idea of running a traditional campaign of the sort that could actually win the presidency. I mean, it does seem like the latter is true, except that one wonders, you know, whether they will also pull out some investigation of the Clintons that will be new and 
change the dynamic of the campaign. I mean, one of Bannon's accomplishments is that Clinton Cash book that had a lot of just amazing investigative reporting in it that, you know, the New York Times, other major media outlets picked up. And his, as I understand it, one of his main really effective strategies is to help investigative reporters dig for stuff that is real news. I have to say, though, the fact that Bannon and Roger Ailes are showing up at the Trump campaign in the same moment makes me wonder if Plan B is like a new TV network or if there is sort of a another um, more kind of about Trump's brand and Trump's future in the media. That's also um, the, the groundwork could be getting laid for that, too. Does that seem plausible to anybody? It does to me only because somebody I talked to who was explaining Trump's thinking about this was basically said, if he's going to lose, he's going to lose on his own terms. And that he had so that there is a notion of who he is absent or separate and apart from the campaign. And by the way, if people are talking like that in 1964, there's a period where Barry Goldwater basically says to his advisors, stop it. I'm going to lose, but I'm going to lose my way so that he in- he retains some essential sense, uh, sense of himself. If that is, in fact, the way Trump is going, then that essential sense of himself and the greater crusade and the larger project continues on beyond the campaign. And so one of the most effective ways to do that would be to have your own campaign, uh, your own media environment, except wouldn't that then maybe in the same, and this is I'm way out of my depth here, but in the way that uh, current TV was Al Gore's channel, like isn't Trump's, what gives him currency is that he's in the main, the mainstream media as well. And that if he created his own channel, he would kind of be in that kind of rut and stuck in there in a way that would probably make him less effective than. But effe- what, what do you mean effective? Well, what, I mean, that implies, that implies that he has some goal. Yeah. Well, his goal is to promote himself as a vehicle for his own views of the world. So I, I, I mean, I, I what John's saying makes sense. It's like Glenn Beck going off into like some other universe, right? That then he ceases to be as much a part of the mainstream media. But Trump Trump thinks about a couple things. He thinks about ratings. And in fact, that is the view through which he – the lens through which he views this entire uh, election. And I thought it was striking that you know one of the ways in which Ke- uh, Kellyanne Conway, his new campaign manager, is able to talk to him is that she uses – she treats polls exactly as if they were TV ratings. And so I think in, in Trump's world, making money and getting a lot of viewers are winning. And I don't think that he especially cares about leading an ideological movement forward. Can you imagine if Barry Goldwater had started a TV network in 1964? What would that have been like? It would definitely a be very, a whistle a, stop episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be a very boring It would be so yeah. boring. It would have been really boring. Uh, although it turns out Barry Goldwater was had a, did some very exciting things. His planes that he flew were, you know, he had emergency landings. He was uh, – when he was All nine, right. nine years old on on the 4th of July, he took the, his mother's revolver from under her pillow and shot the ceiling. So, you know, he was an exciting guy. <laughs> just to step back and just to, to look at what this is making the Republican Party. So the, the wing of conservatism that Bannon represents, that this kind of atavistic, nationalistic, um, uh, not especially uh, libertarian wing of the Republican Party, this is all stuff that the, Republic, the, the Republicans tried to – Banish it, it's it's lurked there even before it's it, in a way it's like the oldest type of conservatism it's it's pre William F Buckley conservatism and every every five years Republicans fight a battle to try to banish this stuff because they know it's so toxic and and most Republicans don't agree with it yet 
it's managed to take over the whole operation. Yeah, I mean, Bannon's allies include the VDARE people, which are the this sort of I don't know how to describe it this, to, to slice this, to slice the ideological salami, which is what I like doing. Um, that that sounded. Go ahead, slice it. it. Okay, <laughs> I'm not, not just slicing. Um, it, it, th- these are called the paleo conservatives. There, there's a wing of them. They have their own institutions and they look with some nostalgia back at the Confederacy. Immigration is in racial purity are obsessions of theirs. And Breitbart and Bannon are kind of the more acceptable versions of it. But this is a real thing with institutional structure and and, and a strong point of view. Right. It, it, I mean, also, when you – the nostalgia implies a kind of sepia-toned, you know, gentleness to it, which it, there's none of that in this group crowd. This is a – it is not – it's not simply a nostalgic – it's atavistic in a very nasty way. It's looking back to a time in the past, which is better, but it also is filled with animus towards Muslims, towards immigrants. It has a, a kind of hatefulness to it that that nostalgia is the wrong word to to embody. The battle within the Republican Party that has already been underway with Breitbart calling out every, you know, Paul Ryan, they were advocates for Ryan's opponent in his primary, uh, which he won by, I think, about 85 percent of the vote. The elevation of this force within the Trump campaign will exacerbate those fights. And so it's a it's now even more a moment of choosing for people like Ryan and McConnell, because you know, if you imagine that Manafort and the selection of Mike Pence were governors on Trump's instincts, those governors appear to be disappearing. And the and the things that Trump might do between now and Election Day, if feeding into this more aggressive posture may leave indelible what, marks. What can the they party. actually what can the party do? So so Ryan and McConnell can sort of not say anything nice about well, Trump. But what right. what literally can the party they do? They can't do much because the, the this notion that the party would write Trump off doesn't work because Trump is raising all this money for the party. And as somebody involved in all of this said, it's like ordering a big fancy meal at a steak restaurant and then kicking the rich guy out. You still have to pay for it. You still they still need the money that he helps raise. So they can't say we're going to cut Donald Trump loose and just uh, support the Senate and House candidates because they need his money to support the Senate and House candidates. And secondly, uh, politically, that's real hard to do is to to tell people to become split ticket voters again after people have largely moved away from the split ticket voting. And if you're going to do that, you need the organs of the movement to be all singing in concert to disseminate the news. But obviously, the organs of the movement are at war with each other. You've got Sean Hannity and Breitbart on the kind of Trump side. And then you've got various other people not on the Trump side. So the message gets gets muddled. A couple of quick things to wrap up here. Emily, should the Clinton campaign credential reporters from Breitbart? Yeah. I mean, they should always credential p- reporters from everywhere, right? We shouldn't decide that a news organization ahead of time is can't be covering the campaign. Is the idea that they're so gonzo and stunt-like in their tactics that they um, are well, just no, the idea is that they're and, or, the person who runs it is now the chairman of the opposing campaign. Yeah, but huh? Maybe I just haven't really thought that through. I don't know. It just seems like they're a separate news organization. Do you think they shouldn't credential them? I think there's a pretty good case not to credential them but they don't kick out trackers from the other campaigns right, right. so if you let a guy right. from the republican party sit there and videotape you who cares if you let a guy from breitbart sit there and record you right 
Right. Yeah, I guess so, I just think not credentialing. It's so petty and and so Donald Trump right now to try to wave that power around. I, I hope the Clintons don't stoop that low. And last thing on this. So Ailes is ostensibly coaching Trump for the debates. I can't imagine that Donald Trump is coachable. What What is it that you think, Frank, that Ailes is doing? Or what could could Ailes do for Trump that would be useful to Trump? Ailes can feed him lines. And, and I, I think that Trump is largely an improvisational candidate, but I think that if he has a good one-liner in him, he would he would he would uncork it. I think that there are theatrics that you know Trump is a television guy, and like, we shouldn't assume that everything that he does is spontaneous and comes from his gut and is completely instinctual. He's like, he's been he's been coached to become a persona that is like in some ways an authentic persona, but also is a constructed one. And so Ailes is going to tell him how to, what to do with his face and how to gesture and, and how to hold himself and to tell him uh, some potential pitfalls about dealing with Hillary Clinton. I don't think it's, it's all terribly meaningful in the end, but it could be marginally useful. Frank Four, it's like contributing editor. Thanks for guesting Frank. We'll have you in for a whole show one of these days i'm I, you know what it's this is such a happy occasion for me i found such peace being here so thank you thanks dude thanks frank thanks this episode of the gap fest is sponsored by aura frames are you ready to win mother's day cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos that mom will love looking back on childhood memories seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The shooting of Seville Smith in Milwaukee last weekend prompted rioting, arson, and also peaceful protests about the death of another African-American man at the hands of the police. Smith uh, Smith's death is remains mysterious. He was carrying a gun, apparently, when he was shot and killed. It's not really clear what happened or why. But it certainly released a dismay and anger about what has been going on in Milwaukee, about the relationship between the police and the community in, in Milwaukee, and of course highlighted that as a, or highlighted that again as an issue for the, for the nation as a whole. It also highlighted the quite grim segregation of Milwaukee, which is considered by many to be perhaps the worst place in America for African Americans to live. So Emily, let's rather than starting with with Smith's shooting, let's start with what is wrong in Milwaukee. What is it that has made it a place that so many people think is so bad for African Americans? Well, Milwaukee has an entrenched and 
really striking pattern of residential segregation. And it's not the only city like this, right? I mean, we know where these dynamics come from, that um, after lots of African-Americans migrated into northern cities, there were often discriminatory policies, you know, the government, the way that mortgage lending happened, there were these redlinings and these districts that were created, and it was very hard to combat that. And then you have white flight out of the kind of core of cities, leaving lots of African Americans and, um, and, and leaving them without easy access to jobs. So one of the big problems in Milwaukee that, you know, more recent government, especially Scott Walker is partly responsible for is not investing in public transportation that makes it easy for people who live in the city to get out of the city to the suburbs where the jobs a lot of them now are. And this isn't specific to Milwaukee. I mean, Baltimore, other cities have similar histories, but it's become extremely pronounced in Milwaukee. And I'm sure some of our listeners read or um, heard about this book, Evicted, by Matthew Desmond that um, was published last year and talked about eviction as essentially like akin to incarceration in its effect on Black families, kind of the equivalent for women in terms of how much they experience and how devastating it is in a way that incarceration can be for Black men. And that book is is set in Milwaukee. And so when you're reading it, you're just reading about this incredibly segregated place in which a lot of Black people are really stuck, and the city has not been responsive to them. And so I do think there's this way in which the shooting was kind of the, you know, match lighting a big powder keg in the city. Why do you think, John, that this shooting was one that prompted rioting and arson, which has largely been absent after these other shootings, um, I mean, it's certainly certainly the the Ferguson, there was civil unrest. But for the most part, the the protests that have followed killing of African American black cops have been very peaceful. Why did this one sort of? Well, you have, have I think, so much more rage. So the preconditions were there that Emily described. I think you also in 2014 you also had a shooting in Milwaukee, the murder of Dontre Hamilton by a police officer who was fired, but then ended up there was no. It wasn't charged. So it had the existing kind of feeling of no justice for these kinds of acts and things that take place. We're in a moment where this is now a national – I mean the world is watching or the country is watching each of these incidents. And so that must play some role, which is not only responding to local forces, but like that there is a greater injustice here than than just what's happening in Milwaukee. There's an interesting local law enforcement dynamic. Um the black sheriff of Milwaukee County who spoke at the Republican National Convention, David Clark, uh, Clark, he's there. He gets elected by the whole county, which means that he um, gets more Republican voters um, in his election, more white voters than a city election would have. The city has a Democratic mayor. It has a district attorney named John Chisholm, who's pretty well known as a reformer among DAs. He's been trying to address racial disparity in low-level marijuana arrests and um, other kind of misdemeanor violations. But Clark, who is African-American, but is deeply conservative, blamed, you know, sort of tribal, um, I can't remember what the second word he used was, but he wrote, I think, an op-ed this week where he talked about the inner city in Milwaukee as a jungle. So he's using these very racialized tropes to talk about this as like a place of hopelessness, and then he wanted to call the National Guard. Has, there's like these kinds of extreme conservative dynamics being injected into this discussion, too. And I think the in the campaign context, the 
this is being a, this has turned into a conversation about law and order on the Trump side and about the police. Trump had a rally not in Milwaukee in a heavily white Republican district in which this was framed as a on the one hand put forward as his speech to the African American community. But it was essentially a celebration of the police, an argument that Hillary Clinton always blames the police. And the pitch to the African-American community was essentially she's a bigot because she takes you for granted. What that speech didn't really wrestle with and what we also, I think, don't wrestle with as much of these underlying factors that in the presidential campaign, the bigger problem here is the – the fact, you know, 15% of the or 16% of the, the kids who come out of Milwaukee City, African-American kids who come out of Milwaukee schools can read and only about 20% are proficient in math and that three and four black students uh, attend schools that are 90% black and that the population that can get loans is close to 20% and it's only 4% in the African-American areas get loans. So there are these bigger problems that are out there requiring some kind of attention and solution and they all get ignored and it becomes a blacks versus the police conversation. Yeah, that's really true. A fascinating and troubling story resurfaced this week. BuzzFeed ran a long profile of Juanita Broderick. You can be forgiven for forgetting who Juanita Broderick is. There were so many disturbing stories about Bill Clinton back in the day. And it came very late in the Bill Clinton sexual misbehavior cycle, which is why it it never, uh, I think, broke through in the way that Monica Lewinsky or Paula Jones's stories did. The story that Broderick has told for many years is that in 1978, when she was working in a nursing home, she was meeting with Clinton, Clinton, who was then the he was the governor, or was he gen, then just he the, attorney the attorney general? general. The attorney general, attorney general. Mm-hmm. attorney general of Arkansas. He invited uh, to want to have a meeting with her. Uh, And then said he rescheduled the meeting for his hotel room so he didn't have to deal with the media. She claims that when she went to his room, he bit her lip and raped her. She told her friends at the time. She also says that Hillary Clinton made a threat, made a veiled comment to her that she perceived as a threat. This story came out. Which was which was what? Because I feel like that's an important part of the story, right? It was. I, do you remember really the exact li- line? Well, I, I yeah, can't. I think she saw Hillary Clinton at a public event, and, and Hillary Clinton shook her hand and said, "Thank you very much for your help." Right. And she and Broderick interpreted that as intimidation in the context of her experience. Right. This story surfaced only publicly 21 years later after Clinton's impeachment was over, essentially, in an interview with NBC, after Clinton had already been not removed from office after the Senate trial, NBC ran this story. The the Broderick allegations were considered by Ken Starr and his investigation of Clinton, but were not really uh, incorporated into any of the testimony or the the actual impeachment trial. Um BuzzFeed's story was weird in that a sense it was it was couched in this Juanita Broderick has become anti-Clinton and is, is has aligned herself with the right being used in a Trump ad. BuzzFeed also points out that Clinton, in the wake of the Broderick allegations resurfacing, has in fact changed her own rhetoric and her campaign uh, website's comments about rape. She had had a lineup saying that victims have a right to be believed, and that is now gone. It only says that victims have a right to be heard. One of the things this made me do is go back and just sort of refresh my memory of all of the allegations against Bill Clinton. And man, Mm -hmm. it is when you sort of pile it all up. Well, there's Jennifer Flowers with whom he apparently had some kind of consensual affair, 
possibly. There's right. Paula Jones, who he who accused him of a form of sexual assault in, in a hotel room when she was a relatively low-level Arkansas state employee. There's Monica Lewinsky, who, again, that was consensual, but you know, Monica Lewinsky was really young, and that was the behavior was really gross, and he was her boss. For sure, a power abuse. Yeah. And then Kathleen Willey, who was a donor, I think, yeah. and who made extremely credible allegations of, of sexual assault by him in the Oval Office, I think. Right. Kathleen Willey was a White House volunteer aide, something, something that put her in contact with him in more than one so, situation. And, and then you have Broderick, who's, who alleges rape. So I don't really have a question. It, just, it is just pretty astonishing when you pile up the allegations against Clinton and Bill Clinton and start to think about what that means. And this is not, by the way, these are the ones that are on the record, not the one, not, then you have to add all the things that have been whispered about for so long. Right. It's hard to imagine someone like Bill Clinton acting this like this now and getting away with it. Presumably, the women to whom these things happened would have had an easier time coming forward, finding reputable outlets to tell their stories in. There would have been a more immediate reaction. And so one of the things that's difficult about this is we're looking back. I mean, in Broderick's case, we're looking back, what, almost 40 years? And in other cases, more like 30 or 20 years and trying to decide how to think about these allegations now, knowing that they weren't taken seriously enough at the time. And that we have this question not really about whether to judge Bill Clinton, or at least for me, it's extremely easy to judge Bill Clinton over all of this. It's what do we do about Think, how does this change how we think about Hillary Clinton and in particular whether she should be president in a race against Donald Trump, right? And so I feel like one of the hardest things about this for feminists is that the choice is so stark. It's does Juanita Broderick's story disqualify from the presidency the first woman who is running for it against someone who many feminists, including me, desperately do not want to have become president? And in the starkness of that choice gets lost the real discussion about what actually happened to these women. What what should we say to Juanita Broderick now, who's telling what seems to be, to me, a credible story about Bill Clinton that she's been pretty consistent about for a while. I understand completely why she didn't come forward earlier. But her story about Hillary Clinton, in her view, intimidating her has never made a lot of sense to me. And so that part of it, I don't especially want to decide, you know, not to support Hillary Clinton because of Broderick's interpretation of their interaction. Um, so to me, the BuzzFeed framing, I thought that Katie Baker, the writer of that story, first of all, was did a really good job of both presenting Broderick's story with sensitivity, but then having some critical distance about the political, um, you know, Broderick wants to be believed. And so for her, the Trump folks are a real form of solace. But she's also like, you know, in bed with people who are real conspiracy theorists about um, the Clintons. And it's just so there's so many dynamics swirling around in all of this. It's pretty complicated. Well, I, I actually disagree with you about that Baker. I thought the Baker story was very good, and I thought the interview was great, and I thought the description of the story was great, and the, and the account of Broderick was was really credible. But I actually thought the framing of it is that she's making bad political choices or that she's hurting her credibility was was wrongheaded. I mean, Broderick is she's a if you believe her story, she is a rape victim. The, her rapist has not only 
gone on to be president, but is is lionized across the world, never been held to account for it. What do you want her to do? She wants her story to be out. Like, who is she? Who should she talk to? And it doesn't seem to me that Broderick is doing it in a particularly grotesque way. She's not like, you know, go, showing up at campaign rallies at every minute right. holding a sign. She's very modestly and quietly sort of talking about this. And it doesn't I don't read her behavior as I'm I'm a political activist. The people who want to tell the story are people who are opponents of Hillary Clinton. And her story is getting not getting the traction in the mainstream media the way other victims of rape. I mean, there have been celebrated instances in which the victims have come out and and described what it's like, and the mainstream media has rushed around them. And in this case, that hasn't happened. So why wouldn't she go for another venue? Right. I actually thought that came across pretty well in the BuzzFeed piece. But it is also true that the reason we're interested, again, in Juanita Broderick is that Hillary Clinton is running for president, not because we're looking back and trying to decide what Bill Clinton's legacy could be, right? This isn't parallel to the Bill Cosby allegations in that sense. And so... Yes, it is natural for Juanita Broderick to turn to people who are disposed to believe her and treat her story with dignity and respect and and air it. But it is also true that the political implications that matter right now are what how do we what does this mean for Hillary Clinton's candidacy? And that's a different question that, you know, changes the equation for how you think about this story. I mean, what this is, I think it's a totally fascinating question. How responsible are you for your spouse's sins? It doesn't seem to me that that, that certainly the threat that Broderick describes seems to me not to rise the level of Hillary Clinton being a co-conspirator with Bill Clinton. That is that just seems that it was not persuasive to me at all. But what is it? What is it okay for you to do as a spouse when you have a, 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 a husband who has misbehaved in the way that Bill Clinton has been described as misbehaving as? Well, it depends which of the misbehaviors we're talking about and what we think Hillary did, right? So, I mean, for me, the Monica Lewinsky story is one in which the narrative I've told myself for years about it is one that's sympathetic to Hillary Clinton, where her husband cheated on her. She stood by him. I mean, I would have been fine with me if she'd gotten rid of him. And I really wonder whether she would be a more effective candidate now if she'd divorced him a long time ago. But I don't judge her for that. That's like a decision she made within her marriage. But whether she tried to help cover up the stories that Paula Jones and Catherine Willey, maybe Juanita Broderick were telling, that's much more difficult, right? It's do we see Hillary as an enabler of Bill Clinton's not just infidelities, but sexual assaults in a way that would have harmed other women? Was she in a position where she was trying to shut them up or discredit them because she was protecting her husband's political career and eventually her own political career? Or is she the wronged wife whose, you know, husband was cheating on her and then she's not responsible for what happened to these women because she wasn't trying to help them, but she wasn't trying to hurt them either. To me, it's like that history is what matters here. And I and I'm just not sure what the actual truth is of what she did or didn't do. John, do you have a sense of that history? No, I don't. I I was just trying to think of what like, so you're a voter out there. How do you? So what's the elect? What's the presidential question here? What's the What's right. the thing that you're what supposed is it? to ask? Is it like I think the presidential judgment? question is whether the Clintons have had to habituate themselves to a different standard because there are these run-ins that the president has had over the course of his career. When you become used to finding your own way around the rules, whether that becomes the way you do it in all 
course of things, uh, or whether this is the messiness of marriages that is known only to the people involved in it, and that that's where it begins and ends. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're sitting with uh, Mr. Bazelon, Emily, thinking about the future. <laughs> a person who doesn't drink. exist. My children are coming home from overnight camp this weekend, so I'm going to be talking to them. I'm really curious about the story unfolding of these American swimmers who claim to have been robbed at gunpoint by Brazilians who were claiming to be police officers and are now having their story cast into doubt. I'm not sure what to think about it, but what strikes me about it is that it is the rare moment in which men who have not been um, victims of sexual assault are being called into account for their storytelling and their actions after their allegations of a crime. So what's happening is that the Brazilians who were deeply um, wounded and insulted by these allegations are now saying that they think these swimmers are lying because they have surveillance footage of the swimmers coming back to the Olympic Village and kind of chatting and joking with each other soon after the incident allegedly took place. And that seems implausible to the Brazilians. And then there's some factual inconsistencies in the way that the um, swimmers told their story about this alleged robbery. And it's just really interesting to watch this kind of picking at a story and doubt take place and have the people making the allegations be young white men who say that they were victims of a robbery as opposed to women. I'm just really interested in watching the next unfolding of it. John, what is your chatter? In keeping with your longstanding uh, a debate that you've that we've talked about, which is uh, whether all of the rules that have made government better are actually making it worse, and along those lines, the the Partnership for Public Service, which is helping both campaigns prepare for the White House in terms of orderly transition, when you talk to the people who do transitions. When you look at the calendar that happens to a new president, and this one will be faced with a tougher calendar than most because they're likely to be offering the first Supreme Court nominee unless uh, Garland gets put in after the election. They'll be making a Supreme Court nominee choice, and that'll create instant – there will be no honeymoon. It's not clear there are honeymoons anywhere before, but but if you're putting forward somebody for the Supreme Court right away, it's going to kill the honeymoon even faster. So the transition teams try and get – administrations kind of on their feet as fast as possible because there are so few days to get things done before there's a, even the possibility of a window opening. So anyway, the this Partnership for Public Service has argued that the president should relax his rules about letting lobbyists work in the administration because it turns out you have to fill 4,000 jobs. And if you say lobbyists can't do it, you can't fill your jobs. Like the removal of earmarks that David makes a strong case for having undermined the actual creation of compromise through skid greasing. The rules against lobbyists have both created an underground fake kind of hiding or underground hiding of lobbying so that they can get past these rules or kept good people from being in government. Anyway, we'll have to see if the, the Obama administration changes its rules or if the next administration changes its rules about about having Wait, lobbyists work. My chatter is about a fantastic, fantastic book I read on vacation. It's called Underground Airlines. It's by Ben Winters, who also wrote the last Policeman series, those of you who know that series. Underground Airlines is an alternative it's set in an alternative uh, america it's it's a counterfactual history it imagines that the civil war never was fought for reasons that are learned about in the course of the book 
as a result, here we are in modern America, and there are still four states where slavery is legal. Not only that, there the Fugitive Slave Act is still in effect, and and this the, ooh creepy. The, the book is about a free African American who is a slave catcher in the North, and it's an incredibly good book. And it's it's I, I think count, I love sort of counterfactual sci fi alterno history kinds of books, but they usually fall apart. They have a great premise and they usually fall apart. This is a book which has a fantastic premise and it is fully realized and it carries it out beautifully all the way to the end. I haven't been as pleased and delighted and sort of rushed through a book and disturbed by a book in a really long time. So I strongly recommend Underground Airlines by Ben Winters. And also every single member of my family who's old enough to read it, read it in instant and my brother's family as well. So it's, it, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just me that loved it. Sounds like it's sort of talking to the new Colson Whitehead book, which of course, are, yeah. Yeah, Colson it is. Whitehead the Colson Whitehead book, which is called yeah. Underground Railroad. Yes. Which, yeah, I think which I'm a, reading, which has a kind of reimagining and which I think is terrific. Uh, well, Underground Airlines, of course, the, is a mo- it's sort of like the, the, they've taken the metaphor of the railroad and because it's modern America, it's now the airline. Is the Whitehead book good? Yeah, it's really good. And it's good because it's reimagining this history, right? I mean, not just so there's a real railroad that's the railroad. And I guess the Underground Airlines is a further modernization of that. But also Whitehead takes different states and turns them into places where different creepy laws are in place affecting black people. So, you know, one state, South Carolina, seems benevolent, but it's really the site of a giant medical experiment. And and it's ahistorical in a way that sounds kind of like this book, too. Now I want to read both of them. Yeah. You know, I was probably in my 30s before I realized that the Underground Railroad was not actually a railroad. So just for what Yeah, it's I worth. think that's true for a lot of people, actually. Maybe not a lot. <laughs> but I think that's that, that, The look I, on John's face is I, good. John's here. looking no, horrified. No, 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 I'm not at all. Minded. I'm not at all. I'm not at all. No, no, no. I'm thinking... I, I was trying to figure out what the definition of that place in your memory is when you think, when you could have believed something, not because you actually believed it, but because you just, just never thought about it. Like, you didn't literally think it was a railroad. Well, I probably, I literally thought it was a railroad clearly to a certain age. And then there's probably a period where I didn't think about it. And then one day I realized, oh, wait, it probably wasn't a railroad. But it was, that was very well, late Colson in Well, Colson I was listening to an interview with him and he, as a child, thought it was a real railroad. I think he figured it out before you did. <laughs> He's 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 a smarter guy. Than but I did am. anyone think it was actually <laughs> under the ground? Yes, an actual railroad <laughs> under the ground. Yes. Okay. Well, that's farther. Well, than then I. you really should read yeah. Colson Whitehead's book. You'll be I'm a very pretty literal-minded person. It. If you haven't noticed, <laughs> I'm like a very straightforward, practical sort of literal person. Plus, it would have been hidden that way, right? Yes. Yeah. If it was overground, what a they would have engineering. <laughs> yeah. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. And our email address is Gabfest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week.